Brooks, Dandrew Leyland. My name is Michael Weston. I used to be a spy until... We got a burn notice on you. You're blacklisted. When you're burned, you've got nothing. No cash, no credit, no job history. You're stuck in whatever city they decide to dump you Where in. Where am I? Miami. You do whatever work comes your way. You rely on anyone who's still talking to you. <laughs> a trigger-happy girlfriend. Should we shoot them? An old friend who used to inform on you to the FBI. You know, spies. Bunch of bitchy little girls. Family, too. Hey, is that your mom again? If you're desperate. Someone needs your help, Michael. And a down-and-out spy you met along the way. That's how we do it, people. Bottom line, as long as you're burned, you're not going anywhere. So began every episode of Burn Notice, creator Matt Nix's series about a burned spy who suddenly finds himself on the outs with the very agency he's dedicated his life to. Burn Notice was a pleasant surprise when it debuted, pretty much out of nowhere, in 2007. TV had moved on since the heyday of the PI, and in a television landscape populated by hard-case crime dramas like The Shield and Prison Break, there didn't seem to be any room for the lighter, wittier fur of yesteryear. Into this brave new world walked Michael Weston, played by Geoffrey Donovan, a spy of the old school. Taciturn, closed off, proactive, Weston is a typical spook. He's got no time for people, emotions or drama. He gets in, does his job efficiently and gets out. His world is upended upon receiving his burn notice and he's forced to take side jobs to make money whilst trying to find out who burned him. And thus, a prime premise for Cases of the Week blended with an overall series arc. Back in the day, this simple premise would have sustained the show with Weston only finding out who burned him in the very last episode. For obvious reasons, that wouldn't fly today. Burn Notice is very much in the vein of shows like The Equalizer or Magnum P.I. or The Rockford Files, in that a former highly specialised agent, disillusioned, fed up, or in this case forced out, leaves his highly trained job and puts himself out there to help other people either out of guilt, like Edward Woodward's Robert McCall, or out of a need to make some money, like Tom Selleck's Thomas Magnum or James Garner's Jim Rockford. Normally this will be an exotic, or at least photogenic, location. New York, or Hawaii, or LA in the case of the aforementioned shows, and our hero will be joined by a cadre of good friends with their own particular set of skills who can help him out. The really good shows of this ilk saw the lead in possession of a cool vehicle of some kind, a Ferrari, a prototype Trans Am, or a tricked-out Ford Torino, for example. Burn Notice ticks all of these boxes. Weston's exotic location du jour is Miami, his cool vehicle, his father's jet-black 1973 Dodge Charger, complete with white leather interior, and his friends an odd assortment of buddies, lovers, family and hangers-on. Primarily, they are his mother, Madeline, played by Sharon Glass, ex-Navy SEAL, now gone to seed layabout Sam Axe, played by Bruce Campbell, and an ex-girlfriend and former IRA bomber, Fiona Glenham, played by Gabrielle Anwar. Over the duration of the series, Michael will make a number of other allies and aides, money launderer Barry, Sugar, his local drug dealer, and Lucy, a local security agent. His younger brother, Nate, frequently joins in, normally for money, often because he needs his brother's help. It's in the characterisation of Weston and his supporting cast that the series scores. Michael isn't friendly. He's annoyed most of the time, dislikes dealing with people, and has no time for games. 
He hates the humidity of Miami, the superficiality of the populace, and wouldn't know his pop culture from his pop art. The pilot episode, one of the best of its kind for this type of show, sets out his flaws as well as his good points over the duration of the episode. Michael left his abusive home as a teenager, entering the military, where his background of neglect and cool detachment was spotted by the CIA. Almost instantly, he becomes an overseas spy, dealing with the IRA one week, in Afghanistan the next. Over the years, he's made friends and enemies, often of the same people. His first case sees him helping out a man framed of high-class art theft. Ray Wise is the bad guy, as he seems to have been in every TV show made over the last 35 years, but it's in the relationship between Michael and the client's son that we see Michael Weston has a heart. It's buried deep, but it's there. The pilot for Burn Notice practically sprints along, largely because, as far as I've been able to determine, it was originally planned as a 90-minute pilot that was cut down to 66 minutes and erred in a 90-minute time slot. This means that the show is fast-paced, giving the audience no time to really look at their phone or gaze around the room. They have to follow the story. That's a good thing for all of you who like to tweet along with shows you may never have seen. What I like about Weston is he's a hero whose very heroic ideals are what keeps getting him into trouble. There's a do-gooder syndrome to Weston, an innate desire to be a good guy that stems from consistently having to protect his younger brother from the violent father. As Anthony Burgess once said, it's as abhorrent to be 100% good as 100% evil, and Weston's biggest personality flaw is his messiah complex. He's also very short-tempered. In the episode Dead Drop, he's quite snippy with the client, whereas his dealings with the CIA handlers charged with monitoring him throughout season one show how single-minded he is in being focused on a goal and his bloody-mindedness in seeing it through. Weston has just as many skills as flaws, a good trait to have when you're press-ganged into service, helping people every week. Like Weston, every single supporting character is wonderfully fleshed out. It's unclear early in how much of a part in Weston's abusive childhood Madeline played, as Weston seems to both resent and be annoyed by his mother in equal measure, although he does still seem to love her, or as much as a man as divorced from his emotions as Michael Weston can love somebody anyway. But very early on, she's providing him with clients and supporting his new endeavour, possibly due to it being the best relationship she's had with her son in decades. We quickly learn that Weston hasn't been home in years, not even for his father's funeral, and he has had little contact with his family. As the relationship deepens, Michael finds it in himself to ask why, as his father became more and more of a thug, Madeline never just left. She replies that she couldn't leave. What would happen to her boys? Michael's subtle realisation that Madeline gave up so much of her life to protect him and his brother is well played by Donovan. Now... Lest we start thinking Burn Notice is another show obsessed with daddy issues, let me disabuse you of that notion. Michael acknowledges his father's influence on him and moves on. He never really dwells on it or even blames his dad. He was who he was. Michael is who he is. Accept it. Get on with your life. Burn Notice falls into two distinct eras. The first three seasons follow a more standalone case of the week format, with Michael normally being hired by external people, sometimes known to Sam or Madeline, sometimes not, and he takes the case, helping them wherever he can. Sam, for instance, frequently brings Western cases in exchange for a kickback. Given that Sam's entire lifestyle seems to be drinking mojitos and finding rich milfs to fund said drinking, I did wonder what he needed the money for. 
but those Hawaiian shirts must cost a pretty penny. In the first season, these cases ran the gamut from standard A-team pulp-like affairs, such as the protection racket, the episode Broken Rules, or con artists duping the elderly, identity. Other times, the series gets a little darker. In Hard Bargain, Michael must rescue an innocent woman, kidnapped by thugs, who think her boyfriend is rich, when he is, in fact, just a house-sitter for rich people. Family Business sees Michael help an airport security guard who ran afoul of gunrunners. The best episodes are the ones that tend to see Michael reluctantly helping people. He's forced to help Fiona in Wanted Man after her turn as a bounty hunter goes awry. Sam needs Michael's help when a friend of his becomes embroiled in a Jamaican gangster problem that escalates to include stolen drug money and corrupt cops in unpaid debts. And any time Michael's wastrel of a brother, Nate, shows up, it always means Michael spends most of the show helping him out of whatever he's gotten himself into this time, be it an accidental prostitution ring in Old Friends, or arguing with him about why exactly Michael ended up with their father's beloved charger, as opposed to Nate. These episodes work best because they show Michael being forced to confront his own inability to deal with emotional attachment. The thing that makes him a perfect spy is the thing that makes him a terrible son or boyfriend. This is seen at its best in fight or flight. Michael is asked to help a waitress and her daughter deal with a troublesome drug dealer who wants them both dead as they are the only witnesses to a crime he committed. Michael's complete lack of empathy with the teenage daughter is hysterical. He simply has no time or patience for her typical teenage shenanigans. There are even a few cases where the producers explain how Michael can often afford to help people without charging them, or only charging them minimal expenses anyway. In the aforementioned fight or flight, Michael is hired by the waitress's boss, who just happens to be Michael's landlord. Michael helps out in exchange for six months free rent. In unpaid debts, Michael, Sam and Fiona find drug running money to the tune of $10 million in a boat they are helping to repossess. To get their client out of trouble, they make a show of burning the money, but discreetly pocket a million dollars of it for their own expenses. After all, that classic charger costs a lot to upkeep. The charger is one of the show's earliest continuity goofs. In the pilot, Madeline needs a lift to the doctors and never mentions the charger. Granted, when she does give it to Michael, it's in a state of disrepair, so maybe she couldn't be asked waiting for him to fix it. However, in another early episode, Michael is clearly seen in the garage, and it's empty. There's no charger to be seen. Now, that's a big car and takes up a lot of room, as we see when Michael is finally given the charger in a later episode. Maybe Madeline moved it out of the way. One of the characteristics the writers introduce early on is Michael isn't infallible, and the series is often at its best when Michael is on the back foot or in over his head. In unpaid debt, Michael ends up fighting a three-front war involving corrupt police, drug runners and the Miami Mafia, and he's very much out of his depth. For the first time in the series, we see him sweat. In False Flag, he falls for the old stalking horse gag, but to be fair, Thomas Magnum fell for that one as well, and he fails to see some obvious clues, clues which Fiona spots a mile away, because there's got to be more to the client when she's played by Lucy Lawless. In Dead Drop, Michael finally confronts the man who burned him, but has to jiggle family problems and the case Fiona and Sam are working on in between checking that a CIA operative is legit. As things spiral out of control with Sam kidnapped, Fiona on the run and Michael framed for murder, 
we see a different side to Michael, as even his well-honed ability to multitask is put severely to the test. This episode, the first season finale, demonstrated how well the series balanced that tightrope of the case of the week versus the ongoing plot, and it does it deftly. Michael's investigation into who put the burn notice out on him is weaved wonderfully into the narrative of whatever this week's case is. He uses Sam and Fiona to spy for it. Sam feeds the FBI bad information to keep them running around in circles, and Michael makes as much of a nuisance of himself as he can in an attempt to embarrass the CIA into just telling him what they know just so he'll get off the back. This even leads to a number of different agents keeping tabs on Michael over the first season, as he gets closer and closer to finding out the truth of who burned him and why. There's a sly wit running through Burn Notice. Lots of witty interplay between the characters. It's a show that puts lie to the notion that it takes a while for a series to hit the ground running, as all of the characters and the actors are note-perfect from the get-go, with the requisite chemistry and backstory all in play. Fiona is the one who changes the most between pilot and series, with Anwar asking to drop the Irish accent once the pilot went to a series, as she herself thought it was pretty bad, and she didn't want to be stuck with it for however long the series ran. To be fair to Anwar, it's not the worst Irish accent in the world. Hell, it's not the worst Irish accent on the show. Anytime we get a flashback to Weston in Ireland, we're subjected to Geoffrey Donathan's Irish brogue, and it's a hell of a lot worse than Anne was. In fact, any time Donovan has to do an accent, it's time to break out the alcohol. His all-time nadir has to be his cockney assassin in the season two premiere, Breaking and Entering, an accent so bad it was akin to having one's ears cleaned out with an ice saw. Other than that, from the pilot onwards, we believe these guys have a history. Michael's relationship with his mum is believably spiky. He has a relatable rivalry with his brother. His friendship with Sam is convincingly portrayed. And my God, I'd forgotten how thirsty for him Fiona was. Bruce Campbell is as wonderfully entertaining as ever as the gone-to-seed spy Sam Axe, whose anything-for-a-quiet-life demeanour clashes with his desire to make a quick book. One gets the impression he falls back into lockstep with Michael simply because, despite all the bluster, he's actually pretty bored scamming hot milfs and drinking all day. Campbell, Anwar and Donovan quickly develop a routine. Weston and Fear ex-lovers with an on-again, off-again relationship, but Anwar's slinky body language and flirty demeanour hide a capable and brutal fighter. She's politically and morally dubious, yes, but even she has standards which is good to know for a terrorist. She also has a genuinely funny, spiky relationship with Sam, who never seems to know exactly what to think of Fee. Sam, by extension, is like a puppy dog with Michael. There's a loyalty there that transcends mere friendship, and Sam is mortified to have to inform on Weston or lose his pension. It's Weston himself who tells Sam to keep giving the CIA just enough information to keep them happy. Campbell's delightful hamming contrasts well with Donovan's steely minimalism. On the face of it, Burn Notice is an update and reimagining of the classic Lone Ranger type stories we grew up with. Michael's a smarter A-team, a less haunted equaliser, a more mature Thomas Magnum. He's capable and inventive, smart and resourceful, but he's not showy. 
Like MacGyver, he can build a bugging device out of a SIM card and a battery. And like McCall and Magnum, he's backed up by his team. But by and large, he works alone, diffusing tense situations with intelligent actions and, when it comes, decisive and quick action. Michael never allows a car chase to become showboating, nor a fight to draw attention to itself. Weston takes out his opponents quickly, efficiently and without preamble. A prolonged fight gets you nothing but bruises, and an extended car chase nets you only a spot on the evening news. There's also a lovely verisimilitude to the gadgets Michael MacGyver's out of household appliances, with many of them containing just enough of a nugget of truth to keep them on the right side of believable. Likewise, many of the spy tips Michael provides the audience via his voiceovers are rooted in reality. Michael's activities were checked over by advisor Michael Wilson, a former spy and friend of Matt Nix. Wilson was the inspiration for the show, and he did a fact check on many of the scripts, even advising the editors were to take out certain lines of dialogue that were just that little bit too accurate. After all, the producers didn't really want kids out there to actually be able to make a flash grenade out of silver foil and 100 bang snaps. These voiceovers become a show highlight, allowing us into the head of a character who didn't talk unless absolutely necessary, as well as grounding some of the more fantastical inventions in fact, or at least close enough to fact to allow us to go with it. The second era of Burn Notice, the latter four seasons, got a tad more serialised and more serious. A new character, Jesse, played by Kobe Bell, was added to the regular cast as a spy that Michael himself got burned. That's irony, kids. The show got more and more convoluted as it became readily apparent that the more Weston got closer to who actually burned him, the more it became apparent the producers didn't actually know. It eventually became so convoluted, I think we all just forgot about it. After all, there's only so many times the producers can pull the there's actually a bad guy behind the bad guy gag before you start going, wait a minute. Burn Notice was that rare show that built its audience year on year. As it entered its sixth season, it looked like it would be around a while longer, but behind the scenes, there was trouble brewing. The city of Miami upped the rent on the locations, increased the cost of filming permits, and generally just started screwing the studio over. Bruce Campbell felt this was really dumb. Burn Notice brought a lot of money into Miami, not just the filming, but hotels and food for guest stars, local businesses employed to do costuming and background work, and the general cost involved with a lot of people being there for eight months of the year. As the seventh season rolled around, costs again went up, and this time the producers didn't want to play ball. After seven years, the cast, tired of filming in the Miami summer heat, were ready to move on. And with the salary increases, the location rises, and a feeling that seven years was enough, the cast and crew decided to bring the series to an end, rather than try to make it more cost-effective and slashing the budget. The final season returned to the series' core theme, the redemption of Michael Weston as a whole person. Deep undercover and losing his identity, Michael must come to terms with the fact that he can't go home again. After spending seven years trying to get back in, he learns that he can't. He's no longer spy material. After all he's been through, reconnecting with Fiona, finally being able to build a relationship with his mother and his brother, away and independent from the abusive element of their family, the connections he's made with people all over Miami, he can't go home again, because ironically, he is home. 
He's done more good for people on a one-on-one -on -one basis than he ever did working as a spy, where, at best, all he managed to do was maintain the status quo. Burn Notice stumbled a little in its last few seasons, but it always remained entertaining, and he even pulled off that rare feat, a satisfactory ending. The final episode wrapped it all up beautifully, taking a leaf out of the Prisoner's playbook by twisting the opening lines of every episode to have them have a different meaning in the light of the finale. His name is Michael Weston. He used to be a spy. Okay, just a heads up, after this next little advertisement for another show, I will be talking about Zack Snyder's Justice League. Spoilers ahoy, so on your head be it if you listen and haven't seen it yet. Between the golden age of Atlantis and the rise of recorded history, there were ages undreamed of. Hither came heroes and villains possessing swords and magic, whose deeds became tales and legends. I have come to relate these sagas. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Days of High Adventure, a new podcast discussing a variety of comics that fall into the fantasy or sword and sorcery genre. Available on most podcast services and Anchor FM. With the release, finally, of Zack Snyder's Justice League, I chose to immerse myself in a Snyder vision quest. Two and a half hours of Man of Steel, three hours of Batman vs Superman, Doer, sorry, Dawn of Justice, the Ultimate Edition, and I topped it all off with the 242-minute cut of Justice League. I did this because I'm into self-flagellation, but also because I've been quite vocal in my dislike of Snyder's slightly blurry vision before, and I wanted to approach the whole endeavour with something akin to an open mind. Maybe this time it'd click, and I'd finally understand what his ravenous fan base see in these films. By and large, it's not the movies per se. It's the fan base that have been the reason for my dislike of the films. They're a humorless and haughty bunch, by and large, completely incapable of accepting that Snyder's approach is often so pretentious as to be parodic, and God forbid others don't feel this material really needs the oh-so-worthy-but-dull approach Snyder takes to these characters. At their worst, the Snyder cultists have been the single greatest example of the word fanatic. Far worse even than the wretched hashtag not my doctor crowd, or even the Star Wars basement dwellers with their constant attacks and single-minded approach. I don't recall seeing any other fanbase tell a pregnant female critic, because of course she was a woman, that they hoped her baby was stillborn, simply because she didn't like a film. That said, I threw myself into the endeavour. Man of Steel actually came out better than previously, and I didn't really dislike it before. It's a solid first entry into the series, and could have been an interesting beginning to a new franchise. Sure, Jonathan Kent is massively misguided, Speaking metaphorically, he seems to be telling his son to remain resolutely in the closet, never be true to himself, never be the best version of himself he can be, and always live a lonely and unsatisfactory life. I also wish I could make the same kinds of mistakes on my first day on the job that fans make excuses for here. Superman may very well be new to this superhero lark, but even with that caveat, he has 
to know that body slamming Zod into a packed IHOP isn't going to end well, right? The film seems to want to prove Jonathan wrong at the end, but backpedals in the next movie, the unrelentingly bleak and thoroughly miserable Batman vs Superman, a film so grim it makes leaving Las Vegas look like a sitcom. Everyone in this film is a sourpuss. The colour palette is dialed down so much as to look monochromatic, and by the end I was so stultifyingly downcast I wanted to immerse myself in all Looney Tunes cartoons to remind myself what colour and fun and joy and life looked like. And I still don't have an explanation as to why Superman couldn't throw the kryptonite spear at Doomsday and then get Wonder Woman to finish the job. So... It was with much trepidation I approached Justice League. Imagine my surprise that it was actually a lot of fun. Well, mostly. See, there are still a lot of really pretentious scenes in it, like whenever Aquaman dives into the sea. The worst one being that choir that shows up out of nowhere to drone on for about one minute solid. I mean, I guess they're supposed to signify the siren song, but that lured sailors to the death but instead conjured up images of carol singers who won't go away. And it is far too long. There are two flashback exposition scenes, one of which sees the team stood around a table for nearly five minutes of stultifying backstory to be delivered that could easily have been trimmed and revoiced over. And let's not get into the fact that Aquaman, fucking Aquaman, still throws litter in the sea. Honestly, I wanted Namor to show up and slap him upside the head. However, there is more good than bad here. Somebody, somewhere, seems to have had a word in Snyder's ear and pointed out that, you know, fun isn't a crime. And as such, some of the characters are genuinely amusing. The Flash is more endearing this time around. And although the cyborg CG is actually pretty naff, he does at least make an impression now. In fact, the character that comes out the worst is Aquaman, who seems to vacillate between smart-ass dude-bro and wannabe Thor so much as to give the viewer tonal whiplash. Ben Affleck actually seems to be enjoying himself, which may be his best acting in this role, and he has an easy chemistry with both Jeremy Irons as Alfred and Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman, who is, again, the MVP. That the Martian Manhunter has been here since the beginning is a real head-scratcher, though. What, the world's greatest detective, who has access to footage from the bottom of the Tonga Trench and has actively been searching for super beings for years, somehow miss that Martians walk amongst us? And what the hell was the Manhunter doing when Zod and Doomsday attacked? Seems to me another super being on a par with Superman may have come in useful right about then. The CG boss fights are also disappointing. There's nothing here we haven't seen before in better movies like Lord of the Rings, which this so desperately wants to be. And any time there's a scene with two CG characters chatting, I check out. But that's any movie, not just this one. It doesn't help, though, that Darkseid, when he appears, looks like shit. Sure, Lois is shafted. Her entire arc basically boils down to Lois is sad. Lois is sad. Lois is still sad. Oh, look, Lois is less sad. So fair play to Amy Adams' agent for getting her third billing and presumably a commensurate paycheck. There is also no reason at all for Superman to be in the black suit when his triumphant return should have been in the red and blue. But overall, I quite liked this. 
Snyder is a pretentious bugger by and large, and some of that still comes through, but this time his nihilistic sensibilities are tempered somewhat, and it's a genuine delight to see people smile in a Zack Snyder superhero movie. Splitting it into chapters helped immeasurably with the viewing experience, as binging this like a TV show rather than watching it as a film is probably the best thing that could happen to it given its butt-numbing running time. I would have to say, overall, I'd recommend it. Until the epilogue. The epilogue has more of that boring post-apocalyptic future dream shit with evil Superman, and the Joker scene basically sapped away some of my goodwill. The film should have ended on the shirt rip. Go out on a high. Don't make it miserable. The audience should feel elated after this one. You already gave them one movie that ended on a downer. This should have been Return of the Jedi. Is it a 9 out of 10 movie? Fuck no. Most people have been reviewing the drama around the film, rather than the film itself. Drama which I have deliberately not mentioned. This is about the film we got, not the behind the scenes, not the drama, not the recut, what was given to us. That's how art is truly judged. So it's not 9 out of 10. Hell, even within the superhero genre, there are better movies than this one. But at giving such a rating, are you really saying it's up there with The Godfather 2, Heat, Casablanca, The Shawshank Redemption, Seven Samurai, etc, etc? No. No way. But it's a solid 6 out of 10, and had an editor been introduced to the film, it may even have scraped a 7, which is what I'd give Man of Steel. But compared to Batman vs Superman, a star each for Godot, Amy Adams, and whoever played the electric cello, and thus a generous 3 out of 10... This can only look better in comparison. Of course, the Snyder bronies aren't happy because children never are and are now demanding a WB hashtag restore the Snyderverse. Given the leaked plans for the next movie, I can't think of anything worse. Snyder should bow and take his leave. He got a victory lap, achieved the near impossible and saw his work redeemed in the eyes of many who had dismissed him, myself included. It's a wise man who knows when to get off the stage. Always leave them begging for more. Okay, we shall dig into the email sack. Matt Prather is the only person that could be asked emailing in. This emotional blackmail seems to work, I'm just saying. Hello, Matt. Hello, Andrew. Dropping an email to let you know how much I enjoyed your recent shows, which again are words I like when they appear in that sentence configuration. In one week, I was listening to an episode of The Overlooked Dark Knight, the anniversary show for Hey Kids Comics, and The Palace of Glittering Delights. All of these entertained and delighted. Yeah, I didn't really think that through, did I? It's, it's, it does. It happens sometimes, you know. Having given the Superman and Lois offering from the WB a go on your recommendation, I'm happy to report I found it all be good fun. I liked Superman from Rebirth in the comics, if not how and when it fell in continuity. Good stories overall, but a bit of a mindfuck as to how we get to them. Superman is dead. Long live Superman. The Super Sons and Rebirth Superman, Super Dad, is the last great Superman stories I enjoyed. These being a while back, doesn't seem great for my friend in the blue tights. The Superman and Lois show seems to have a lot in common with that era of Superman, and I appreciate the recommendation. You're very welcome. I very much enjoy Superman and Lois. I've seen a couple of episodes now, even though it's not technically showing in England yet. That's probably because 
the show was only on for was it four or five episodes and then it took a break to show some episodes of Supergirl and that seems to work fine on American television that doesn't go down well over here people don't like that so I would imagine they're going to wait until they've got a bank of episodes of Superman and Lois before somebody buys it and shows it but for the most part I really enjoy Superman and Lois it's it's a really good look at how being Superman can be quite difficult I guess Spider-Man, Matt continues, is always an entertaining topic for a show. The McFarlane art is dynamic at times and certainly full of energy, but like yourself, I was growing less interested by this time in the run. The Eric Larson stuff that followed was a cartoonish breath of fresh air. Eric getting two bites at the Sinister Six apple in a very short period of time, to varying degrees of success. If you're of a mind, more Spidey would not be unappreciated. Oh, there's always more Spider-Man. Congrats on 10 years of Hey Kids Comics. If you get the chance to record more shows in the death and return of Superman, that would be great. If you guys get a chance to record anything, I'll be here for it. You both always seem to enjoy it, if not the material, then at least the company. Sorry to blather on, just wanted to let you know how much I enjoyed the show. Thanks again, Matt Prather. You did not blather on, Matt. It is lovely to hear from you and anyone else who wants to drop a line and let me know what they think. That about wraps it up for this one. It's about half an hour. It's the average length of a normal sitcom, and I do this all on my own. They have a team. So I'll see you all next time. You can email into heykidscomics at virginmedia.com if you want to have your say, and it's all going to be okay eventually. Take care, and I'll see you all real soon.